Father, we thank you. You are so good. You are so loving. You are so kind. You have been gracious to us, Lord. You have kept us whole in mind, body, soul, and spirit. So we give you glory this evening. We thank you for the ability of coming together as one body to, to study your word, Father. And I pray that our hearts will be open and we will have a teachable spirit tonight, Lord. Remember the one who teaches this class. We pray that your Holy Spirit will give him wisdom that comes from heaven. Give him everything that he needs, Lord, to conduct, to conduct this class tonight. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Tonight, we're going to move a little bit forward. We were in Colossians. And, of course, there's always, I mean, we could spend a few dozen months in Colossians, but I wanted to kind of move the conversation forward. We're talking about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And tonight, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, and then a couple other selected passages in Hebrews, which give us a perspective on who Jesus is and what our uh, responsibility is to that knowledge. So we're going to begin reading tonight in chapter 1 at verse 1. I'll be reading out of the new King James translation which says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak 
you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? May God's blessings accompany the reading of his word. Tonight, we're going to look at one of the more um, important ideas that is associated with this doctrine of the deity of Jesus. When we ask the question, why is it important? It doesn't really matter. You might be, you might run into somebody who says, look, you know, I don't really know everything, you know, that Jesus Christ really was, but I know he died and I know he rose again. And isn't that enough? And, you know, to a certain to a certain point, you might say, yeah, that's enough. But there is one area in which it is essential. It is absolutely critical to truly know who Jesus is. And that is in the area of worship. The true nature of Jesus Christ is of the highest importance in the matter of worship. The term worship is not exclusively defined in Scripture. Generally, it refers to reverence, praise, honor, service, thanksgiving, bowing before, bending the knee to, devotion, glorifying, magnifying the name of, and such things. We, you know, worship is one of those words where we may not exactly know how to define it, but we know it when we see it or we know it when we express it. Basically, we can say that worship is the acknowledgement of a superior or divine being by rendering to them the recognition, service, praise, and glory that they are rightfully due. And I want to stress that they are rightfully due. There are many beings out there that want to be worshipped, both uh, human and otherwise, but do are they rightfully do worship? Do they truly deserve it? And how can we know? How can we be sure? Worship connotes the concept of worth, that the one who is being worshipped has an intrinsic worth that deserves recognition, reverence, and glory. Why does worship matter? What difference does it make if we worship or don't worship? What is the, what is the intrinsic value of worship? Why is it necessary to recognize something that is intrinsically superior? Um, I know we don't, we don't really like that. Maybe it's the phrasing I'm using there. Uh, you know, a lot of human beings don't believe that there's anything <laughs> superior to themselves. But, um, you know, when you read your Bible, worship takes uh, a, a, a big role in both the Old 
and New Testaments. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the reasons why humanity exists, one of the reasons, one of our, one of our purposes is that, you know, we are created to, to worship. We have a, a, a inbred uh, desire, you know, if you think of it and think of it in human terms, you know, why are there, I, I know it's kind of strange right now, but, why are there so many uh, awards shows? Why are there so Why are there so many uh, ways of recognizing? I was I was thinking I was uh, watching a program the other night about a a singer, and they uh, they mentioned that this particular artist had had won something. I forget the number, but had won some uh, high number. Let's let's just say twenty five. Had won twenty five. Grammys. I don't know if anybody's won 25 Grammys, but this this particular thing. Let's say he had won 25 Grammys, and and that was you know that was uh, used to to support the idea of their uh, greatness as an artist. Why 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 do we do that? Why do we need to recognize value and worth and achievement and accomplishment? Worship connotes the concept of worth. We have, we have something in us that compels us to recognize the value, to recognize the, the worth of persons uh, and the worth of, of, of accomplishments. You know, if you, uh, and, and we attach value, we attach importance, we attach significance you know, if if you win a uh, a baseball game in in you know in April, you know it's 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 an accomplishment, but you know it's 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 not as big a deal as if you win a baseball game in October. Why is that? Well, because the baseball games that are played in October are considered to be of more significance. They're they're recognized as being more important. Because they are the supposedly the the best of the best that is competing at that time, and that that idea that that a achievement or an accomplishment has value, and that that value can can be measured, and that that value is to be recognized, is at the heart of this idea of worship. And of course, at the top of that list, you know we. We're never satisfied. Who's happy with being number two? Does anybody celebrate second place? Um, I guess maybe the Olympics, right? There's a silver medal. Uh, do you remember who won the silver medal? Do you remember who came in second to Usain Bolt at the Olympics? I, uh, Brother Donald, you probably remember, but I, I, I don't. You know, we remember the first place winners. We remember the the record setters. We remember the the ones that you know, when the Tiger Woods and the Michael Jordans and and people of that stature who don't just win but win at the highest levels of competition. We recognize that has value. We look for number one, whether it's in uh, in entertainment and music and even on your job. 
uh, you know, there's somebody's, you know, somebody on your job is going to be the employee of the month or the employee of the year. You know, there's, there's that recognition of worth and value. And when it comes to worship, the scriptures are clear that God and God alone is to be worshipped and to worship any other being is idolatry. To worship any other being, any other thing other than God is idolatry. And to claim that any other being is God other than God is blasphemy. So when it comes to the worship of Jesus, this is not something that we can be wrong about. It is the highest importance. It is, it is life or death. You know, the, the, the fundamental commandment of Scripture is you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before him. And so when we think of the role and the importance, the need, the necessity of worship, and we recognize that there is only and truly only one person, one being, who is worth more than all of the others, whose value, whose glory, whose person, whose, whose nature is above everything else, that, become, that makes it very clear that there is only one to worship. And so this becomes a very important uh, issue to decide. If we're going to worship Jesus and he is not who we think he is or who the Bible says he is, then we are committing, we are committing a very grave sin, a sin worthy of judgment, a sin worthy of condemnation and of eternal exile from the presence of God. So, so it matters. It matters in a way that maybe nothing else we've talked about concerning the, the deity of Christ matters. The worship of Jesus was an indicator of what the first, what the first Christians believed about his nature. So let's consider that for a moment. Who were the first Christians? First people to worship Jesus were Jews. Now think that through. These were people who had been raised on the commandments, right? They had been raised, and a matter of fact, you know, the, there's, there's, there's a, uh, a strong, strong cultural and religious uh, uh, bias in Judaism against idolatry, that comes out of the Babylonian captivity. They recognized after that captivity in Babylon that, uh, that they had uh, committed grave sin against their, their God and worshiping these other gods. And so by the time of Jesus, um, by the time that he was on the earth in his incarnation, the Jews took this whole matter of you worship God and only God very seriously. 
So what does it tell us about what they believed about Jesus? That they were the first ones to worship him. They, um, they believed that he was God. That he was worthy yeah. of worship. We, we don't have a great uh, understanding. Of course, you know, most of us grew up in monotheistic uh, societies with the exception of those of you that had Hindu uh, influences in your life. Um, most of us grew up with you know, this idea that there's only one God and that's, that, that, that's just something that's second nature to us. But when you think about the world of the first Christians, the first followers of Christ, they were basically, the Jews were basically the minority. You know, it wasn't a big stretch to the pagans to accept the idea that Jesus was divine because, you know, they were perfectly okay with, you know, having dozens of gods, hundreds of gods. There was, you know, there was a temple for everybody. Remember Paul and his visit to Athens there on Mars Hill. Um, you know, they even had temples to gods they didn't even know. So for the pagans, for the Gentiles, worshiping Jesus would not have been considered a strange thing. But for the Jews, for his disciples, and for those at the day of Pentecost, and, and you know, the, the, the Jewish church that was existed in Jerusalem, um, this would have been a huge huge uh, cultural shift. You talk, about, uh, you talk about a new world order, a new age. Uh, they must have believed, they, they had to believe that God had come to them in the person of Jesus Christ if they were willing to extend to him the same worship that they extended to, to God. Matter of fact, all four Gospels record instances of his disciples and those he ministered to worshiping him. This is before his resurrection, you know, when he was still on earth. There was a sense, a growing sense. Remember that confession of Peter that started this Bible study back in January. You are the son of the living God. There was, there was a sense that, uh, that, they, that Jesus was more than just a man, and, and, and again, while the term worship is a little hard to, ex to define exclusively in the Bible because it, it can mean all those different things that I said earlier, uh, it is clear that his disciples and those he ministered to began to look upon him as, uh, as divine and, and worthy of worship. Even Jesus himself in John chapter 5 said very, you know, some of the things he said that caused his disciples, you know, caused that large group of disciples to abandon him. You know, he had those hard sayings. And one of them in John 5.23 was that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That was a... a uh, a very controversial statement to claim that he was due the very same honor and reverence and respect as, as God was, uh, well, I mean, it was enough to get some of them to want to, want to stone him. 
So when we look at this passage here in Hebrews, this tells us not only who Jesus is, but that worship of Jesus is commanded by God himself. Let's look at verse 3 there in Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, some of this will be familiar. We did spend some time in Hebrews uh, a few weeks back when we talked about Jesus' ministry as the high priest. But this portion here, we didn't go too deeply into it. The writer says he is the, he is the brightness of his glory. That word brightness means the splendor or the reflection. He, is the, he, he reflects to us the glory of God. He is, we talked about the Shekinah glory that, is, is, uh, that was present in the tabernacle over the mercy seat, that pillar of light that uh, led the uh, Israelites through the wilderness. This brightness, this splendor, this reflection is in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says also here he's the express image of his person. There's two words there. The word that's translated image there, express image, it's the same word that we get our English word character from. And, and the original meaning would be uh, like engraving, uh, engraving a likeness or engraving words in stone. So think about the, think about the, uh, the original Ten Commandments where God wrote those words, those commandments in the stone with his own finger. He engraved his word in that stone and he's engraved his character in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're getting that, but it's one of the most powerful statements that God has written into the person of Jesus Christ, his own character and glory. And, and it says he's the express image of his person. And that word person there, if you know, how many of you know Hebrews 11.1? 1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. This word that's translated person here, hypostasis, is the same word that's translated substance in Hebrews chapter 11.1. 1. And it, it, it wants... It wants us to understand that it's not a mere representation. It's not a facsimile, but it's the actual substance, the actual foundation, foundational essence and nature of God is fully expressed in Jesus Christ. That's a powerful, powerful, the writer here could not put it any stronger to let us know that there is no diminishing of God's glory and no diminishing of his character in the substance of Jesus Christ. And that alone begs our worship and, and our recognition and giving rightful due to who Jesus is. But the writer goes on to say in verse 6 that God has commanded the angels and all of creation, if we go back to Philippians chapter 2 there, where it says God's given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. That knee shall bow, that's an act of worship. 
and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Lord is the exclusive title of God in the Old Testament. So here we have God himself directing the worship of all of his creatures to be focused on the person of Jesus Christ. The writer quotes from different psalms, Psalm 45, Psalm 89, Psalm 97, Psalm 102. They're all cited to demonstrate that the worship of the Son was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. You know, you, you get that argument sometimes that, you know, this Jesus thing, this is just a New Testament thing. But if you go back into the Psalms and you go back into uh, the prophets and into the law, you see that there was a foreshadowing, a prophetic foreshadowing of the worship of the Son of God alongside of the Father, not in place of the Father, but alongside that God shares his glory fully with his Son, Jesus Christ. And there's no jealousy there. You know, you and I, you know, I'm on the line tonight. There's several other ministers on the line. And, you know, sometimes we pastors, we get a little territorial. <laughs> we get a little, you know, I try not to be. I really do. I try not to be. But, you know, we're, we human beings, we're not great at sharing glory. We, you know, we, we're not great at uh, stepping aside, let somebody else get the attention and the focus. We, we have a jealousy Sometimes, you know, we're able to control it and keep it from interfering. Sometimes it gets away from us. But I want you to understand that there is no jealousy between the Father and the Son. They share the glory equally and fully. And to worship the Son is to worship the Father. And and there is no, you know, that Father-Son relationship is indicated here. Because it, it tells us that the Father, the Father takes pleasure in the worship of His Son. You know, uh, if you're a father or a mother, don't you take pleasure when, when your children are recognized for what they do or they get an award? You know, I have, you know, I have drawers full and boxes full of, of, uh, of mementos from my children's youth where they got this certificate or that award or, or that recognition. And as a parent, you know, I, I felt great pleasure, great, I still do to this day, um, you know, take great pleasure in when my children get recognized and when they're honored. And it's the same thing with God. There's no jealousy there. They, are, they, they share the glory, and God has commanded them all of creation to to glorify the Son alongside of and with the worship that is offered to the Father. Now the question then becomes, and you'll see this a lot, you see it in Paul's writings, uh, probably everything that Paul wrote, he has a statement in there somewhere, maybe more than once, where he gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ, or he Praises God through Jesus Christ. Well, if we turn in Hebrews, and, and we're going to skip to the end here um, to save a little time, but if you go to Hebrews 13, Hebrews chapter 13, we read from 
verse 10, which says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So, we see the idea introduced in the New Testament and brought out here that not only is Jesus our high priest, but he is also the altar through which we offer our worship to God. Now, who can tell me what an altar is? The place of worship. The place of worship, yes. It's the place the sacrifices were laid once they were offered to God. The place of sacrifice, yes. So what is the purpose of sacrifice? Why were sacrifices necessary? Why were sacrifices offered? To show our total dependence on God. Amen. A sacrifice was the means by which one approached or came into the presence of God. If you had sinned, a sacrifice was necessary to do what? To make amends or to, to reconcile, to, to, you know, if you had offended God, you would offer a sacrifice, and the sacrifice would, in theory, um, you know, atone or cover for that sin so that you could come into God's presence, so that you could approach. If you were... You know, if you had not sinned, a, a sacrifice was still necessary because one does not come unto deity, one does not approach a king without an offering, right? So we talk about offerings. We talk about, you know, usually we talk about tithes and offerings, right? But we, we talk about offerings as something that is given to show uh, respect or to show reverence or to show appreciation or, or thankfulness, gratitude, uh, many, many, many reasons why an offering might be given as an expression of worship at a place of sacrifice, an altar. Here, the writer says, we have an altar. What does he mean then? What is our altar? Who is our altar? Our altar is Jesus. He is the place or the person through which we come to offer our sacrifice or our our offering, right? So, um, you know, to, to, I guess to put it sort of in, in in the terms most of us are familiar with, right? We when we bring an offering to church or we bring our tithe to church, right? We 
we, we, we put it in an offering plate. That offering plate is a type or form of, of an altar. It's, it's where we place our gift. Remember, Jesus talked about putting your gift on the altar. It's where we place our gift to, uh, to basically sanctify or, or make the gift acceptable to God. So if we think this through and we understand Jesus himself was the sacrifice, so we don't need to offer a sin sacrifice anymore. We don't need, you know, there's no more sacrifice for sin. The blood of Jesus is all sufficient and it's already been offered. We don't have to, we don't have to re-crucify Christ every time we come to, to church or every time we want to come to God. But the sacrifice that is mentioned here is a different kind of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise. It's the fruit of our lips, giving thanks. Yes, um, with altar, is a, it's a structure in which we bring um, an offering, or in those days, a structure in the church where they would sacrifice an animal. So in today's, in today's um, Christendom, where, where do we as Christians, where is our, our altar? Are we seeing it as a, we have to go to church to have an altar? Or how do we worship God and our altar? And where is it? It's not a where, it's a who. Our altar is Jesus Christ. He is the means through which and by which we have access to the presence of God. And, and I say that, and I want to make it clear. I know that, you know, you go into most churches and there's a designated place of worship or a designated place of prayer, and we call those designated places altars, and that's all fine. I'm not, we don't need to, you know, reinvent the, the whole system here. But we need to understand that the only way, the original purpose of an altar was to sanctify the, the gift, the sacrifice. That's why if you go back and you study the temple in, in the book of Exodus, the altar had to be made a certain way. It had to be dedicated. It had to be, it had to be cleansed. It had to be, it had to be uh, sanctified with blood. Because when you bring that sacrifice, the reason why you didn't offer the lamb on the side of the road was that was not the place of sacrifice. The place of sacrifice was the altar that had been appointed for that purpose. And for us, the only sacrifices that we have to bring, as I said, you know, we don't have to bring a lamb or, or a turtle dove. We don't have to offer blood. That's already been taken care of. But we are under the obligation to worship God and offer sacrifices of praise, of thanksgiving, and of doing good things, good works that, that please God, doing things that please God. And Jesus mentions a whole list of things in, in Matthew chapter 25, you know, giving uh, you know, the hungry, helping the hungry, a whole list of ways that we can offer worship and sacrifice to him, through him. But what makes those sacrifices acceptable? What's the difference between me saying praise God, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah, and a person who is not saved or born again saying praise God. Are both of our, are, are, is, is my praise God and that person's praise God uh, uh, 
have the same effects? Do they accomplish the same thing? Are they regarded as equal? No. Because unless it's offered on the altar of Jesus Christ, unless it's offered through him, it's not acceptable to God. And this is a critical point because, you know, even some of us have, have, from time to time, we fall into this trap of thinking that all worship is equal, that let the Muslims worship in their way, let the Jews worship in their way, let the Hindus worship in their way, and we'll worship in our way, and, and God, you know, God just, just enjoys it all. And nothing could be further from the truth. If our worship is not offered to Jesus and through Jesus, it is not acceptable to God. And that's such a, a, a point that we, you know, we, and, and I know, and I, I don't want to get off on some rabbit trails here, but I'm going to tell you, you know, I, you see these services, and I, I, I'm not trying, I'm going to try to walk a very, very narrow path here. There's a tendency uh, when we all used to come together. You remember those days when we would, we would all gather together for worship and not do it over the phone? Uh, you know, there would be a tendency to, you know, we, we, we would want everybody who was there, saved or not saved, spiritual or not spirit-filled, you know, we, we uh, clap, say hallelujah, say praise the Lord. And, and I understand why we do that. But we need to understand something about that. If a person doesn't know Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how loud they shout, how hard they they, 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 they dance or jump around. The only thing that makes worship acceptable is when it's offered through Jesus Christ. And so if we, if we don't understand that, if we don't get that, we're, we're going to find out that a lot of the worship that gets offered in our churches these days is, well, I don't know any other way to put it, it, it never goes any farther than the church building. Heaven is close to it because it doesn't come by the altar of Jesus Christ. Remember that conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well in Samaria? Remember, remember they were, what, was the, what was the subject of that conversation? It was worship, right? She asked the question, you Jews, you worship down there in Jerusalem, but we worship here on the mountain. Tell me which is the right. And Jesus responded to her. He said, listen, the Jews worship what they know. You worship what you do not know. What was he saying there? He was saying it is futile to worship what we do not know. Worship can be sincere. You can mean it, but it can still be misguided. It can still be wrong. You, you can mean it. You can be sincere. You can, you can have a sincere heart, but if you're not worshiping what you know, you are not worshiping in an acceptable way. And uh, you know, what else did he tell you? He said, we can only worship God in spirit and truth if we know God in spirit and in truth. You can't worship what you do not know. You cannot worship what you have not personally experienced. We can only know God through knowing Jesus. And we can only worship God through worshiping Jesus. So, so connect those dots. Connect those dots in 
in what Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria to what the writer in Hebrews is saying here. God is particular. God is particular. What makes our God different than the gods of this world and a God of, I should say, the, the, the God of the popular imagination of the, of the day? Our God is real. He has his own mind, his own will. He prefers this to that. He wants this, but not that. He chooses this, but not that. He's a real person. And he's very particular about how he is going to be approached. He is very particular about the worship that he will accept and the worship that he will not accept. It, you know, most of us prefer this sort of, I guess, this democratic idea that whatever we want to give ought to be acceptable to God. However we want to worship ought to be acceptable. Let each one do what they think is, give what is right. You know, you, you get into these arguments these days, and, and I, you know, I, I don't like to reduce everything, but, mo- but most of us, the, the thing we understand more than anything else is money, right? Money is, is, is the thing that connects everybody. And you get into these arguments, well, Christians should tithe. No, they shouldn't tithe. Christians should give whatever they want. Like it's up to us. Like we are the ones who will decide what is right to to do or give. God's already decided. This is not a matter of voting or a matter of debating or a matter of... God's already said, this is what I will accept. This is what I will not accept. And the the only part we have to play in this is to submit and obey or not. And it's that, way with, it's that way with worship. It's that way with praise. It's that way with thanksgiving. God has said, I, it doesn't matter how sweet your voice is or how talented your, your, your instrument playing is or how generous your gift is, if it does not come to me through the altar of Jesus Christ, it is not acceptable. I have commanded all of creation to exalt his name, to confess his name, to direct the worship to him. And if you're not willing to do that, it does not matter what kind of worship you give. It's all for nothing. And that is such a critical mistake that gets made by both Christians and non-Christians. We think we can just... We can just decide what we want to give or what we want to praise or how we want to do everything our way and just do what we feel is right and, and not understand that God's already worked all of this out for us. And he has made it abundantly clear that if we will not honor the Son, we cannot honor the Father. To fail to worship Jesus Christ is to sin against the command to worship God. You say, well, why is it like that? Why did God put it that way? Because God has decided that the only way we can know him, and remember, we cannot worship what we do not know. The only way we can know him is to know Jesus. He is the express image. He is the brightness of his glory. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the word made flesh. He is God manifested in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
if we want to know God, we have to know Jesus. And if we want to worship God, we have to worship Jesus. God has chosen how he is to be worshipped. He has made Jesus the veil that gives access to himself. And we can come through Jesus. We can come through him and have access to God, but we must come to him in the way that shows respect and reverence for his son. None of us would, would, would allow anyone to uh, flatter us who was disrespectful to someone we loved. Think, think about that for a moment. Someone comes in and, and says to you, oh, you're the greatest pastor, the greatest, someone says to me, <laughs> you're the greatest pastor I've ever seen. You're the greatest preacher I've ever seen. But, you're, but, but you know what, your wife, you know what, I, I don't like her very much. Well, I'm sorry. If you can't respect her, I'm not interested in what you have to say about me. Same thing for my kids. Same thing. You would be the same way with your family. They, they tell you all these wonderful things about yourself, but then they tell you that, uh, yeah, but we don't care about the, 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 the rest, and, and that's not acceptable, and it's not acceptable to God. If we're not going to show respect to Jesus, God's not interested in anything that we have to say to him. So what does it mean? It means Jesus is due our highest praise. He's due our heartfelt thanks, our honest service, our humble reverence. His name is to be magnified above every other name. His word is to be obeyed above all others. His works are to be proclaimed. Not ours, not what, oh, I, I, I did that. No, his work, his work is, he's the one that gets the glory in all things. His love is to be shared with everybody. His grace is to be honored. If we do not render to Christ what is due to Christ, if we fail in this most fundamental duty to worship the Son of God as God has commanded us to, then nothing else that we offer, no sacrifice we make, no gift we give, will have any uh, benefit or blessing to God or to ourselves. That's why it's so important that we understand who Jesus is, because think about it. Think of the role that worship plays just in the economy of God, just in, in, the, in, in the day-to-day relationship that we have with God. If we exclude Jesus from our worship, what kind of relationship can we even have with God? So it is right and good and just and, and, and necessary to worship God through the person of Jesus Christ. And he is to be our altar. He is to be our, our, our mediator, our priest. And all of our worship is due him and all of our love and all of our praises to him. And may his name be glorified from the rising to the setting of the sun. Amen. I have a question. Sure. But the Bible says, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you think it is possible that people in the church, or some of us who are in the church, profess to be Christian, don't know how to worship him? Well, yes, I think that's possible. We, we, 
we substitute a lot of things, or let me say it this way. There's things that we call worship, um, either out of ignorance or just out of immaturity, that are not actually directed toward God, and that can be dangerous. So yes, um, we must know how to worship. And, and yes, we, we have a responsibility as ministers, as leaders, to teach people how to worship correctly, how to worship in spirit and in truth. But, but you know, it's not just a matter of form. It's not just a matter of ritual. It comes to that inner indwelling of the Spirit of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit working through us. And if we allow that, um, if we allow the Spirit to be our own personal worship leader, uh, we will render acceptable worship because the Spirit is going to do it the right way. One more thing, sir. Um, when we said the Spirit, and, and, and I, I realized that in church, when we said we were to worship in Spirit and in truth, they see the Spirit, I see the Spirit, I don't know if I'm wrong, as the Word of God. And just like you said, the direction that God has placed onto us. Because the Logos become Rhema in us. But some people think the Spirit is, 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 is emotions and, and, and jump, jumping up high and, and, and speaking in, in tongues. So could you, could you clarify that for me, sir? Well, when we speak of the Spirit, we must distinguish him from a spirit. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God himself. God is Spirit. And so he encompasses uh, the Father. He encompasses the Son. He is, he is the Spirit of the Father. He is the Spirit of the Son. He is, he is the third person in the divine trinity that is working in us and through us, through our mind, through our faculties, and sometimes, you know, I, I don't want to exclude the emotions because um, emotions God given, and they can also be sanctified. They can they can be rendered as tools of worship, as instruments. Your your emotions can be just as much an instrument of worship as your mind, your voice, your hands, your feet. It it's not and it's not necessary to to exclude any aspect of, of our humanity from our worship. We are to worship with all that we have. And that means internally and that means externally. Uh, but we have to distinguish that from our own spirit, which can try to substitute or try to counterfeit uh, the work of the Spirit. That counterfeit, which you, you're, you're, you're recognizing, I recognize it, where someone is acting out in a way that is intended to convey that the Spirit of God is working through them, but in reality, they may not even know Christ. They may not even be born again. They may not even be in a place where the Spirit of God dwells in them, and that's dangerous. That To counterfeit the work of the Spirit, to call something the work of the Holy Spirit that is not the work of the Holy Spirit, 
is one of the most foolish and dangerous things we can do. And so uh, I agree with you that the spirit and the word of God must be an absolute agreement at all times. The word of God will never contradict the spirit. The spirit of God will never contradict the word. They are always in harmony with each other. And, and so if someone begins to act out in a way that is, that is, that is contrary to what the word of God says, that's not the spirit of God working in them. It's a different spirit. In a lot of cases, it can simply be, um, and we, we got to be a little bit better. We got to be a little more careful about this, especially as Pentecostals. We put a lot of pressure on people in church to worship in a way that we defined, that we've historically defined as worship. And, and that can cause some people to try to manufacture uh, the form or to imitate, maybe that's a better word, to imitate what they think the worship should sound like or the worship should look like instead of letting God genuinely worship through them. And, and we need to do a little better job as leaders, as pastors, in teaching and instructing and in getting our worship teams on board. Uh, and I'm grateful for the worship team I have here at Lighthouse. They, they've really, I think, done a great job in understanding this, this distinction that uh, we cannot just, uh, you know, flip a switch and come in and say, okay, the next five minutes, everybody just do this or that and call that worship. There's, there's a buildup, you know, there's, there's prayer, there's sanctify, sanctifying things that need to be done to make our worship uh, acceptable. And, and nothing's more important than honoring Jesus. And, and I, I say this, and then we'll, we'll have to go, but if you want to know if worship is on point, if you want to know if worship is, is truly of the Spirit of God, there's one test that is 100% accurate, and that is, does it glorify Jesus Christ? If it glorifies Jesus Christ, you can be sure that the worship is sincere and that it is acceptable. If it glorifies the worshiper, if it brings more attention to the person who's expressing it, if the worship is not in agreement with what the Word says about Jesus, if the worship does not honor the Father through Jesus, then you can also be sure 100% of the time that that worship is not of the Spirit of God and it is not acceptable in God's sight. So if, as long as we make Jesus the, the, the test and we make honoring Jesus the test, we will be successful in our worship and we will be pleasing to God and we will receive uh, you know, all of the benefits and the blessings that come from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, we're out of time for tonight, but we'll be back again next week. We do want to continue to remember those who are not well.
especially those that are suffering with these, uh, this virus. And uh, we want to remember our country, our nation, as they, and those who are in the medical community that are, are doing the work of ministering to those who are sick. And let's just keep, keep them in our prayers. Father, we give thanks for your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, to remember each of the needs that's represented in these homes tonight and all across our nation. We ask you to touch those who are doing the work of tending to the sick, the work that you assigned as one of the tests, one of the kingdom tests of, of what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we just pray for them tonight. And we pray for our nation, God. And we pray for just a, an outbreak of healing and, and restoration and wholeness in our nation, in our community here in Broward County, God, and Orlando and Hawaii and everywhere else that people are listening tonight, God. Let the Spirit of God release that healing virtue of Jesus Christ through your ministers, through your churches, and, and through those who are out and among those who are sick. And Father, we just thank you, God, tonight for the word. We do recognize the divine right of Jesus Christ to receive all the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And let power and strength be ascribed unto him now and throughout all eternity. And we glorify him, and through him we glorify you. We ask it in his name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service by calling 701-801-6266 every Sunday at 1045 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.